0: Hello, thank you for making your way back to the Kind Mind Podcast. Today we're talking about empathy, and I recorded this talk in March of 2023. The word empathy has origins in Greek, empathia, and the root pathos, which means feeling. It was first introduced to the English language in the early 20th century as a translation of the German word, "Einfühlung," which means feeling into. The term was initially used in the context of aesthetics and art appreciation. Over time, the concept of empathy has evolved to encompass a broader range of psychosocial processes associated with one, effective empathy, experiencing or sharing emotions of another, and or two, cognitive empathy, which is understanding the perspective of another Empathy is a crucial component of emotional intelligence and the development of meaningful relationships. I want to tell you a little bit about some interesting research on the subject. In a 2011 scientific paper titled How We Empathize With Others, A Neurobiological Perspective, the authors, jankovic ciuda and colleagues highlighted some Fascinating findings in different regions of the brain involved with empathic situations and the modulating factors between male and female participants. Stronger empathy activation was observed when participants witnessed acute pain versus chronic pain on the faces of others and also greater empathic responses in the brain when subjects were related to the person in pain they were observing. If participants were asked to perform a counting exercise while observing pained faces, then the empathic response was also reduced, implicating the role of attention. Another modulating factor that maps onto cultural and social conditions was the sex of the observer and the observed. A higher level of activity was noted in the amygdala, the anterior cingulate cortex, and in the somatosensory cortex when participants observed pain expressed on the faces of men rather than on those of women. The authors wrote specifically owing to the stereotype of, women's role in, of a woman's role in inspiring harmony or creating a loving home or women are perceived as being more empathic than men. Other studies confirm this, including the observation that female babies are more likely to display reactive crying to other babies crying as a primitive manifestation of empathy. In another fMRI study in which participants are asked to empathize with players of a monetary investment game who are being administered painful electric shocks, when it happened to individuals who were playing unfairly, the men in the study observing had a lower empathic response but the women observing had a comparable response to the shocks administered to those who did play fairly to quote these authors interestingly the magnitude of this effect correlated positively with the intensity of the desire for revenge admitted in the questionnaire filled after the experiment so this suggests that empathic reactions in men Are also shaped by perceived fairness of others, and they could even derive a satisfaction, a visceral satisfaction, from seeing the unfair individual being punished. Empathy is such a profound aspect of our human experience. Since it hinges on these various mechanics in the brain, which take time to develop, like our prefrontal cortex across 25 years of life, it makes sense that ordinarily we would gradually become more empathic or grow out of our lack of empathy because it requires some level of abstraction in time and space. What's it like to be in this person's position or the consequences of our actions in some, at some other point in the future for ourselves or others? Some of my biggest regrets are simply failures of empathy, either a lack of attunement to the hurt of a friend, or a partner, or a classmate, or even a stranger. And I have more of these the further I go back in time, and thankfully fewer episodes later, but I'm still working on this. The opposite of empathy is apathy, or the lack of feeling. So as a virtue, empathy can be the foundation for generating compassion and a motivating energy for pro-social behavior. However, it could also be argued that the value of empathy is unstable on its own and may need to be balanced with rationality and discernment in order to navigate between the extremes of excessive empathy and calloused indifference. Otherwise, the drawbacks involve our susceptibility to emotional exploitation as targets of manipulative marketing or weaponized empathy Just think of how much we can feel for the encounters with others in our dreams, or in books, or film, or video games. Right now you can ride a dinosaur in Fortnite, and it's hard not to feel something for the dinos. But they're just programs and computer codes. Or what about AI characters, bots, and deepfakes? How many online comment threads involve more fake accounts than real ones? We can be so provoked by all the unreal. There is also the risk of empathy distorting facts as evidenced by proximity bias, which is a preference for those close in distance or likeness, and other modes of selective empathy like short-term focus and the prioritization of identifiable individuals and their stories over large groups or abstract statistics. These limitations have inspired the effective altruism movement, which aims to update our evolutionary empathy algorithms to match the often complex modern social problems. Additionally, unbound empathy can lead to distress and burnout. Preoccupation with the feelings of others can result in decision paralysis or the hindering of our ability to respond timely and skillfully. When a river floods its own banks, it turns turbulent and loses the balance that sustained its nourishing flow. Or like the tides of the sea, we naturally require a cycle of rising in feeling and retreating or releasing. Ultimately, I think empathy's true spiritual power reorients to our recurring theme of kindness and discovering our underlying circulation with totality. Feeling into oneness. It is an elegant, common cornerstone among most major religions. At the heart of these moral philosophies, the empathic aphorisms enshrine a similar message, just in various colorful ways. Beyond the Golden Rule, other verses include, "The whole world as a family," in the Rig Veda, or "All beings are Buddha nature," in the Lotus Sutra," and "Be Kind." For everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle, attributed to Philo of Alexandria. So we will explore, in this episode, the ends of empathy in all of its bittersweetness. A word of warning that the later parts of this episode get rather weird. I was up all night before this original talk, and I was contemplating timescales of other life forms and how to empathize more unusually and bizarrely with other life forms and even the inanimate. And so I was probably a little sleep deprived, but it's still good food for thought. And finally, I want to try something different to conclude this introduction, which is why it took so long to prepare this episode. I wrote a short science fiction story as an allegory for this complex digital age and the dystopian traps associated with trying to mass produce a consensus of feeling and to underscore the these two sides of empathy it's dark side and it's light side i welcome some suggestions uh, for a title to this story or other ideas for this narration maybe an animated short would be possible in the future But ultimately, I would just love to know your reactions to this story as a premise also for an expanded sci-fi project. Anyways, here it goes. I'm going to read it to you now. In a future time of the earth, near the zenith of flashing screens and silent interplay, of glass and of steel, of lithium, silicon, and binary, a paradigm shift beckoned. A new dawn was approaching as a cadre of enterprising engineers, technologists, and visionaries announced the unveiling of a groundbreaking innovation, known simply as the Oroscope. This name referred to its intriguing design as an empathy enhancer, which augmented one's ability to perceive and experience the essence of another. It was the most advanced technology and functioned as a sophisticated biopsycho social network, crafted to amplify the empathic bonds between humans and across all civilization. Whereas the previous media and telecommunication iterations connected people superficially and ultimately into separate antagonistic groups, the horoscope touted depth and expanded harmony like never before. Its creators promised an end to the polarization, divisive rhetoric, and perennial discord and prophesied a golden age, where shared feelings and emotional understanding would become the most powerful, unifying force on the planet. As throngs of enthusiastic new users rushed to join, they learned how the horoscope integrated into daily life and personal expression. A combination of stylish, elegant, and often discreet headwear. Glasses, jewelry, skin patches, or body suits for the most immersive experiences, and later various minimally invasive micro-implants, all of these interfaced with each user's nervous system, incorporating neuroimaging to scan and interpret the wearer's brain activity, identifying patterns that correspond to various moods or emotional states, while haptic feedback... Encoded vibrations and physical sensations, and miniature cameras with emotion recognition AI captured data from other faces during interactions, and biometric sensors recorded heart rate, body temperature, and skin conductance. All of this information would then be converted into a format that could be transmitted, received, and regenerated among all devices and into the mind-body complex of the users. At first, the horoscope functioned as intended. A society once fractious began to hum with compassion. Conversations deepened. Wars ceased. Prejudice dwindled. It seemed as though humanity had finally cracked the code to lasting cooperation. But there was a serpent lurking in this modern Eden. A shadow beneath the surface glow. Was each user... Accessing empathy for another's lived experience, or empathy for their empathy for someone else's? As the veil between minds grew ever thinner, humanity's collective psyche became a vulnerable canvas, ready for painting by numbers. Society, once a mosaic of individual consciousnesses, began to merge into a single, albeit ever-shifting image, that was trending universally downward, due to the abundance of sorrow at the onset, distinct identities started to dissolve into a global collective, fading like the final notes of a forgotten song. Because as billions of people embraced the horoscope, and every user was wearing the emotions of other users, it became unclear whose feelings were whose. As the people lost themselves in the aggregate experience, their individual identities began to blur. The physical and metaphysical boundaries that once marked I from you began to melt away and the world found itself on the verge of a monoculture, a singular mind with a thousand faces, none its own. Meanwhile, Kindria, a young woman and budding artist with a fierce spirit and a bright mind, found herself at odds with the global transformation she had always experienced the world differently and had a rich inner life perhaps this was partly due to her adhd attention deficit hyperactivity disorder like many neurodivergent individuals she often struggled to navigate the nuances of social interaction while the world was ecstatic about the horoscope kindria was suspicious The horoscope was said to offer everyone the full taste of empathy, but for Kindria, the idea of her inner reality being broadcast, consumed, and manipulated by others was deeply troubling. She protested the commodification of empathy. The horoscope's universal popularity soon led to it becoming mandatory, first in schools and then in places of employment. The government claimed that the unity it offered was necessary, to guide them to an empathic utopia but kindria and a few of her friends saw something different a tool for control a way to shape perceptions and suppress dissent kindria and a small minority of others were actually immune to the horoscope's effects you see individuals with neurodevelopmental diagnoses like adhd or autism spectrum disorder can struggle with empathy at times As their attention difficulties or impulsivity can hinder their ability to attune to others emotions and understand their perspectives. This also contributed to the stigma associated with this cluster of mental health concerns. It is important to remember that empathy deficits in neurodivergent individuals do not reflect a lack of caring or compassion. Instead, Interference patterns may arise from differences in cognitive and sensory processing, which can impact their social interactions and emotional appraisals. These so-called symptoms of their life in the former world became the very sources of immunity from the horoscope, and what uniquely positioned Kindria to maintain an objective view and seriously contemplate the risks out of genuine concern for humanity. In this sea of conformity, Kindria became a beacon of hope for individuality. She recruited a band of rebels whose minds were also wired differently and whose own atypical neural patterns also interfered with the mechanics of the horoscope. This unlikely group of heroes mounted a resistance to the horoscope's influence and a quest to reclaim and preserve autonomy. They began an underground movement harnessing their unique gifts to undermine the supremacy of the horoscope. Their mission was a dangerous one, but Kindria, with her alternative leadership style and way of seeing, was undeterred. They navigated through perilous retaliation efforts from the powers that be, their wills tested against a society that had unwittingly surrendered its freedom. The rogue would-be redeemers infiltrated the tech corporation, gathered intelligence, identified whistleblowers, sabotaged further plans, and exposed the problem's while dissecting the complex technology over several years. They engaged in hacktivism and developed countermeasures such as a digital detox program to help users break the spell and recover their minds and personalities. They waged a multifaceted awareness campaign, recruiting allies and mobilizing the public. In a climactic confrontation, Kindria herself faced the mastermind behind the horoscope challenging the twisted vision for humanity her words raw and sincere pierced through the cold logic of control the battle was eventually won not with violence but with a deeper understanding of what makes us human when the horoscope was finally dismantled society began to heal the victory was a celebration of human diversity individuality and bona fide connection the world learned to be wary of shortcuts to paradise and see the beauty in diversity and the pitfalls of homogenization. The legacy of the horoscope lingered as a cautionary tale, a reminder that empathy, love, and understanding should not be manufactured or controlled. The revolution reminded that empathy's power lies not in its mass production, but in its authentic individual and gradual practice. In the end, it was Kindria's genuine kindness, unaided and unaltered, that saved humanity. Her unique mind, once a source of struggle, became the key to liberation, proving once again that it is our multifariousness that makes us marvelous. The End Thank you for listening to this long introduction, and now I hope you enjoy this episode in pathways to enlightenment and in darkenment. This is called the pearls and perils of empathy because empathy tends to be a bit of a double-edged sword. To begin with, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of of the word because it's actually a newer concept in psychology or in moral philosophy the word empathy does come from ancient greece empathia the root pathos means feeling but it wasn't until the 20th century that it was updated by psychologists to mean what we think of today in the broader social cognitive process of relating to another. It was translated the English word empathy. I thought it was going to be Greek. I thought it had something in common with like patience, pati, compati, compassion. Maybe it was empati, but no. Einfüllung in German was translated to the English word empathy, and that literally meant feeling into It applied originally to art, appreciation and aesthetics, but not in the way that we might think, where we're trying to look at art and uh, intuit what the meaning of it is and what the artist might have been feeling when creating it. Instead, it meant that you would put, you would project your own feelings onto the object. As strange as that sounds. And it it sort of evolved from there in the early part of the 20th century. In modern psychological terms, some researchers divide this concept into three categories. Cognitive, affective, and compassionate, empathy. So the cognitive aspect involves being able to intellectually take the perspective of somebody else and try to understand what they're going through or their circumstances. The affect part is to actually share in the mood of another person. So this person is sad. Can I access that color, uh, that mood tone in myself? I might have to dig a little bit deep to relate somehow to a time when I went through something similar to be able to accomplish this. So it's it's quite a special skill when you think about it like that. And then the compassionate part, which I I tend to think is important if we're going to consider this uh, a moral virtue. The compassion part means that those feelings then, at least in this third category, are motivating a person to be concerned to do something, uh, to to serve, to help to try to lessen the suffering of another person. There are some some interesting mechanisms for this capacity, but I want to emphasize that it's limited ordinarily like memory. Believe it or not, we don't remember everything perfectly, especially with short term memory recall. If we can only hold on to like five or six items without mnemonics, for a brief period of time, how do we decide what we're going to hold on to? There are a lot of biases involved with that. And so the case with empathy. On the surface seems like it's only good, but we'll get into some limitations with this dimension of empathy and its uh, incompleteness in that sense. I can't remember everything. I can't look at everything at once. I don't have like some birds 360 degree vision. So I'm always making a choice what to pay attention to. Tony Robbins once said that we're always making three choices. What we pay attention to, what it means to us, and what we're doing about it. Like, I'm paying attention to my back, and it hurts, and therefore I'm leaning to the right. So it means something, and I choose to lean to the right. And we don't always realize that we're making those three choices. Similarly, empathy in that way is like a flashlight flashlight's limited it depends on where i shine it the question then becomes why do i shine this light of empathy where i shine it do i do that consciously do i do that unconsciously another way to think about it is that we have this skeleton key which can unlock not just one door but many doors and if we step back we could ask ourselves why do we keep unlocking the same doors when we have this capacity and what could be different if we opened doors that we never dared to unlock before coming back to the the cognitive aspect or the biological underpinnings of empathy we have hormones that play a role in this like oxytocin oxytocin is a pro-social hormone we feel it when there's closeness or affection for each other or for your loved ones or in intimacy or in childbirth and that creates helps to create a bond because it's an opiate so when people are having some kind of experience a sexual experience or a childbirth experience and then feel that kind of elevation and that euphoria surging it makes a strong connection in the brain and that connection can last forever there are some other features involved with this including mirror neurons. So empathy is multifaceted. Mirror neurons are hypothetical cells in the brain in between action cells and perception cells. A little background on this discovery, there was an Italian researcher, I think the name was Rizzolotti, and he and his colleagues in 92 were studying what they thought was a circuit of action in a macaque monkey as they were teaching it how to toss a peanut into its mouth. So they're following this path in the brain and they're collecting data. And also when these cells fire, it's transmitting a signal to their computer. When this happens, a sound is also produced like a little ta ta sound as the signal is encoded. Well, at some point, at least according to the story, they're taking a break and talking about the research so far or the design of the experiment. And one of Rizzolatti's associates grabs a peanut out of the bag and tosses it into his mouth. And w- while he does that, they hear, tak, tac ta from the monkey. <laughs> and they look over at the monkey and the monkey's just observing the other researcher tossing the peanut. But it didn't make sense at the time because they thought that should only happen when the monkey does it. The firing of the neurons. Anyways, this led to the theory of a mirror neuron system in humans, and it has been detected in other animals, like primates and um, horses, I believe. Dogs, not cats. that doesn't mean that cats aren't intelligent um they have very intelligent qualities like revenge (laughs) that's what you want in a pet right (laughs) no they i mean they they have some capacities for empathy but their their behavior is quite different than dogs where you may have the experience where a dog actually seems to be feeling with you or feeling into as the etymological translation of the word implies you could be sad and the dog might look sad put its head on your lap or something and it's thought to be because of this and so this may explain empathy in the form of everything that we enjoy or engage with culturally sports why would somebody be on the edge of their seat at the end of a game that they're not playing i mean i can understand it now with gambling (laughs) but you know If you remember the uh, Cubs World Series a few years back, or some years back, game seven at midnight, rain delay. I mean, I'm like leaning in, what's gonna happen? As if I'm pitching, you know, that's mere neurons. So what this means is these cells can fire when we're doing something or when we see somebody else doing something, thereby giving us the experience, the subjective experience of something that it would be like to be in that situation. And, and that leads to the whole sequence of physiological changes. We get nervous, we sweat, we jump back in a violent scene of a horror movie. We get sad when something happens in a sad movie or a sad story, even if it's fiction, even if it's pure fiction. All of this combined helps explain some of the multidimensionality of empathy in human beings and other animals. This has got to be a crucial component for emotional intelligence, this ability to be able to reach over to you and put myself in your shoes, so to speak, but but try to take on some of that lived experience. I try to divide this tonight into two sides, the light and the dark side of empathy. Because if we're going to consider this, in in my view, uh, a moral virtue, it's highly unstable compared to say gratitude or kindness. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So as a value or as a virtue, it it probably needs to be balanced by discernment and rationality because our empathy is kind of a code also that had some evolutionary value. If I don't feel much for the people that i'm responsible for like the children that i have i don't have but as a caveman well then it would it would really be hard for the survival of the species so we feel things but it also leads to some misgivings when we try to apply those evolutionary origins to the complex modern social problems of today so it can be a motivator for not only connecting with the people in our life but for social justice if i don't feel anything for the unfair conditions of somebody else or the poverty of somebody else or the suffering of somebody else why would we do anything so i I think that this is a virtue when it's met with rationality and discernment and then it's traded for compassion otherwise just feeling what you feel or as a clinician I found this to be the, the, the case for me in the early years of working in hospitals and working in psychiatric care. I would just feel so drained, listening to the story, empathizing with the patients or the clients, and then just having nothing to give in my personal life. And also seeing my battery go down in my work pretty quickly some people, it, ha- it happens over decades. For me, it was happening right away. Then I realized I got to set a boundary with this feeling. I have to find a way to cap it and then access compassion. Because I think compassion is, a, is much more renewable. If you think of the times where you felt real compassion for someone in your life, someone you're caring for, or a sick child, or a sick partner the way you can just go. You know, you, you find like a, a reservoir of energy. A mother or father can go without sleep and and just keep going, you know, in a way that's hard when you're just working or just trading hours for dollars. And I found that to be the case for me in my, in my work, in my other work in, uh, in the clinical setting, that I really, and I could explain this to patients also, that at some point, I don't need to feel any sadder about what's going on with you because I now need to be able to devote the the resources that I have to helping you. And for that, I need to have more energy. I might even need to be in a good mood because in a good mood, I can help elevate somebody in a bad mood. They're more likely to bring me into the commiseration of sadness, depression, anxiety and so on. So it, the empathy is useful in the sense that it helps us be able to recognize or receive a, a, like an alert or warning signal. Something needs attention here and then I can shift to compassion. Um, so you, you may have different thoughts about that but I'd like you to just plant a flag there. Another way to think of this double-edged sword could be like a river. There is some amount of water in the river that makes it uh, truly nourishing. When the river is within its banks, the banks are limits, but the limits themselves give the river its forward motion. And as it flows, it cleanses, it heals, it serves in all different ways. But if it goes beyond its boundaries, it floods. And if it dries up altogether, the ecosystem is compromised. And similarly, as human beings, it's worth stepping back and reflecting on how we feel, how we use this emotional intelligence, how we wield this power, this skeleton key, this river that's flowing in us that feels so much. I'd like you to think about maybe some unexpected ways to experiment with this. Because the research shows that we tend to be quite selective with our empathy. Uh, There's a few heuristics associated with empathy. One is the proximity bias, which means we're more likely to reach out cognitively, effectively, compassionately to people who are like us. And that can mean something different for everybody, but it could be like us in terms of space like people in my house, people in my neighborhood, uh, versus people in distant countries. Could mean people who are like us in terms of ethnicity, identity, sexuality, orientations, gender, all different kinds of demographics. So I would invite anybody here or listening to this in the future to think about what is a way you can experiment with this skeleton key to open the door of another kind of experience that you've never had, that you've never really sat in? Why? Because if you aren't similar to that, you're likely not going to have much intuitive empathy for that circumstance. And then this comes back to the golden rule. Is that how we would want people to treat us if we were the one that everybody else, let's say, couldn't relate to. And there's some way in every human life that feels like nobody gets this. And wouldn't it be great to be seen? Wouldn't it be great to be heard with whatever that is? Now, we know some of the, you know, the common ways that we divide and the constructs that we create around so many things with culture and the way people look, the way people talk, the languages that we use. Language isn't something that has a biological or genetic counterpart to it. These are things that are socialized into us. But once somebody has a language, once they have a dialect, once they have um, a style and so on, our mind apprehends that to denote something different. It's a reason that we might other somebody else. A couple ideas here could be to do this with specific people. It could be to do it with a fictional character. Whatever way like, is creative and safe for you it can be with somebody that you don't understand, that you work with, but really take time to try to take on that perspective. I recall a time in my childhood, I got really into a series of fictional books by the author Mildred Taylor. You may have heard of the, the, this famous one called *Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry*, and it was part of a, became a series of novels about the Logan family in the uh, Southern United States. And I'm a 12-year-old kid reading this all the way to *The Road to Memphis*. I think one of the later ones is called. And there's something so unique, so special about literature, and novels in particular, that's hard to explain as compared to just reading research about something, looking at statistics. We're not really wired for that. But when you read a book, it's also different than a movie. Because a movie is like two hours, whereas a novel might be like two weeks, might be two months, might be two years of swimming in that literary reference frame. So I was doing this, you know, over the course of years. If I hadn't read those books, it's not clear to me that I would be as engaged with social work in the way that I am. But it became very clear as a tween that there's something that it's like to be perceived as black or to be perceived as somebody different in this country. And it generated a lot of empathy in me. But it also, I think when I look back, created part of the spark to go open more of these doors. And that made it possible, like some of those early experiences made it possible or gave me the courage to go live in Europe, to go live on the East Coast without knowing anybody as a teenager, to go live in India and travel there on my own. And then really get the experience of Not really being able to walk down the street without being noticed for being different. Not being noticed because what I do here or work or music. Just because you look different to the people around. That's not something that you can easily empathize with just by somebody telling you that you ought to feel something about that, you know. We can also learn a lot then from doing this with going beyond that. By applying this to animals and to other types of life, I think because animals are so different than us, we torture them. I mean, we systematically destroy their experience on this planet because it's just not something that we take the time to even think about. We don't necessarily actively think of torturing them, like as a civilization. I don't think most people in a civilization say, we got to really make it hard on more animals. But we just do because if they stand in our way at all, we just brush them aside, even eliminate them, even eradicate them. Any size animal from the bison that went from 60 million in 1850 to 800 in 1899. And they stand in the way of conquering the indigenous people in this country at that time, wipe out their food supply, um, facilitate Manifest Destiny. I'm talking about the colonial vision of the 1700s, uh, the 1800s. And so if there's an anthill in my driveway, I just kick it away. But has anybody, but I mean, how often do people stop and think about what is it like to be an ant? What is it like to be an insect? Not so that, you know, we become some great insect activists or something, but because I think it helps us understand something about who we are and what our insecurities are. I think a lot of our insecurities and and how this is portrayed with like aliens coming to our planet, if you think about the majority of films about alien uh, invasion from War of the Worlds that everybody freaked out about (laughs) whenever that was a hundred years ago, to Independence Day or whatever, it's always that they're hostile and wanting to do tests on us and steal our resources. That's probably a reflection of our own superiority and inferiority complexes. <laughs> and it also may be why we don't even detect clearly. I mean, maybe maybe there's evidence of this that I'm not aware of. But like conclusive proof that there is other intelligent life in the universe because we barely understand the way... I'm, Science has documents on this, but I'm saying ordinarily our day-to-day experience, we don't really understand nor acknowledge or take into account the way that other life forms are existing and how they're communicating. It could be entirely possible that very microscopic life do extraordinary things. Of course, people who research microscopic life learn about those, translate that to the macro level and try to help us, perhaps. But there are amazing examples of empathy in other life forms. One that comes to mind is a type of ant, ondontomachus Bauri, I don't know if I said that right, but this particular ant senses when the queen dies. The worker ants sympathize with the death of the queen in this particular colony, but what's fascinating about this is According to some research that this will happen no matter where the queen is on earth. You could take the queen, they'll all keep working. If you crush the queen, they'll stop. It's not completely known how I call it empathy because they're obviously feeling something. There's other evidence of this with pets on webcams. Rupert Sheldrake has talked about this in his book, Ways... To Go Beyond, I think it's called, uh, The Spirituality of Pets is a chapter. And I might have talked about it before, but they show that th- there's a lot of evidence that pets feel things when the owner unexpectedly dies uh, away from home and they're on webcam uh, observed feeling it. So my point here is that there's a lot more to learn about what it means to be alive, what it what consciousness means. Consciousness is such a mystery, but we're also failing to solve that mystery by not paying attention to the experiences of other life forms. Uh, But now let's come to how this is advised in spirituality as as a gateway, as a pathway to psychological growth, spiritual awakening there's a uh, a common thread among verses and aphorisms and adages in all the major religions akin to this to all these notions of empathy there's the golden rule and there's expressions of the golden rule like do unto others as you would have done unto you or do unto others as they would have you do unto them Uh, that's sometimes called the platinum rule treat others as they would like you to treat them and not as you would like them to treat you which requires a little bit of work, cognitive tooling what is it that they that this person wants how do they want to be treated um, and what's you know their unique experience like? or in the Lotus Sutra of Buddhism all beings are Buddha nature or Philo of Alexandria, uh, the, the Greek philosopher who said, and this is it's pretty common to see this in memes now, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. That's got to be true because everybody dies and everybody loses people. It's just a matter of what cross-section of time and space do we meet with when we see the the avatar of a person's face, when we see their photograph on a feed. I was thinking about as a musician the creative state. And for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people and I found some evidence to support this in research, that people tend to have a mood that could probably best be described as melancholic before they create or or transmute their emotion into expression. Melancholia has a pretty negative origin etymologically, but it's not quite depression. So many times this is used interchangeably with depression, but I don't think that's accurate because melancholy is more like the beauty of sadness or even the happiness of the dark side. My sadness tells me that this connection or this loss meant something to me. And it says something about what moves me. And I think that's why we might gravitate towards sad music or sad art or sad stories or movies that make us cry, because there's something profound and something universal in those experiences. Consider that melancholy may be a prelude to empathy, but coming to the dark side, In psychology, there is a cluster of personality disorders characterized by malevolence, and that's known as the dark triad of narcissism, Machiavellianism, uh, which is characterized by diabolical displays of power and vengeance, and based on the book by Machiavelli the Prince, How to Rule. You act nice in, in, in one instance to uh, uh, engender loyalty and then you cut off people's heads when you have to. I'd heard that Machiavelli actually said at another point in his life that this isn't what he thinks people should do or how he thinks governments should be set up. He's trying to show you that this is how power actually works. It has to corrupt. Therefore, we should avoid hierarchies like this because of how corrupt it is and how detrimental it is to the well-being of a society. Then there's another one, uh, psychopathy. Sociopath, psychopath. That isn't um, a diagnosis in and of itself. It's a a trait often associated with antisocial personality disorder. One in a hundred or so might display sociopathic traits. It doesn't always mean that those people are dangerous. It's often a combination of dark qualities in this dark cluster, including the antisocial piece. And so, so sometimes these combine. But we ordinarily think about this in psychology as a deficit of empathy. The psychopath can't feel the hurt that they inflict on somebody else or the serial killer doesn't feel any remorse and you may, you know you may have seen that in some of these documentaries and you can kind of see sometimes that um, not only do they not not feel bad about it, they, they often feel like some indifference or they get a kick out of the publicity or the fame. But other people theorize that this leaves room for a counterpart or a balancing, personality trait. Maybe a dark tetrad, which would include a dark empath. Is it possible that there could be somebody in this area of personality that actually has the capacity to feel what you feel, to take your perspective and then weaponize that? Knowing that this will make you sad and knowing what that feels like can provoke somebody into that or can seize on those moments if you don't really know that somebody's sad because you have a full deficit of empathy how will a person know like that's the opportunity to exploit them When that take some at least some cognitive level maybe in this dark cluster some people have the cognitive aspect but they don't really feel it they know intellectually that that person's suffering but they don't actually feel anything bad about it. And so then they can manipulate that person, like the narcissist. And certainly not the third one, the the compassionate empathy. I don't know how I feel about this. And dark empath is not a diagnosis in the DSM, but it raises a philosophical debate. Does empathy need to involve the motivation towards goodness? I would say it does, especially if we're gonna talk about it as a virtue. And I experienced it in my work, as I said before. Just feeling what other people feel may not make any difference. Only when it's coupled with some concern does it lead to some positive change. Another dimension of the dark side of empathy is a term coined by the philosopher Kate Mann, she's also a professor at Cornell, called hympathy. I'll explain it in her words. Himpathy, as in male, him. The inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy in cases of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, homicide, and other misogynistic behavior. I find it interesting once I I learned about this because as I paid attention, especially during the emergence of the Me Too movement, how at first there was such resistance on all sides. And, and and she doesn't say this is something that only men do for men, that this is something that society is kind of socialized into, to put themselves in the shoes of, of the man. Not, and, and I don't think this is just for powerful men. I, I think that this even explains like sentiments like boys will be boys when they're doing something destructive or hurtful to some, somebody else as kids, that, well, you know, put yourself in their shoes, that we, we do have a tendency. And, and if you think about a lot of relationships that go awry uh, or abuse in relationships, how at least historically, I, my family has told me stories about women being sent back to abusive partners by the family. So that's not a new idea. I think it's pretty prevalent in a lot of cultures that, that people would take the perspective of man, would feel sympathy for what the man's going through. But I invite you to, th- to think about that in the news, in your life, when maybe you didn't get empathy that you needed um, in relationships. I- I've heard it told to me by patients, I've heard it told to me by colleagues, when they're trying to make the workplace safer, that it's hard to draw attention to certain things that involve really taking the perspective of somebody other than uh, the man in the story. I've said this a lot of times before, but I think in fiction we can see how easy it is to empathize and excuse or justify or rationalize any kind of unethical behavior of a man. I've used the example of Breaking Bad many times. The audience can empathize so intensely with Walter White, who's probably way uh, way far along on the narcissism spectrum, and also the, the traits of Machiavellianism and uh, psychopathic tendencies, and yet, because we don't begin there in episode one. We begin with a man who's kind of overlooked, not appreciated for the genius that he really has, and we gradually get to him murdering all kinds of people, you know? So then you have the actual death of Walter in season five in the last episode. Incredible episode, though, by the way. Brilliant. And afterwards, there was a funeral in Albuquerque, a real funeral for the character Walter White and thousands of people went and mourned the death of an imaginary psychopath. (laughs) If that ain't some empathy right there. Some other drawbacks to empathy in psychology, fatigue and distress. If I don't cap, if you don't cap your empathy for others, at what point do you burn out? I heard Gabor Mate, the author of the latest book of his, The Myth of Normal, saying that compassion fatigue might be a misnomer in the sense that we're wired for compassion. We get energy for that. But when our empathy is tuned in such a way that we're overextended beyond ourselves and we're not including our own life, our own mind in our compassion, that's what feels like burnout. Which makes us think I got to stop being so compassionate, but really it means I might have to prioritize myself. Now, some of these biases lead to a movement today called effective altruism, which suggests that we're not really wired to do this correctly with today's problems based on our ancient origins and this is exemplified in heuristics like the proximity bias i mentioned before but also story bias we tend to feel more for somebody's story over data like thousands of people could be dying in a war or in an atrocity but i'd rather give my money to this victim in chicago or something like that because i know their story or the kid that I'm tutoring that needs help, I think I'll give my money there, even though that same amount of money might save thousands of lives somewhere else in the world. Our intuitions don't map onto that accurately. However, the effect of altruism movement maybe takes this for granted to some extent, in the sense that, is it really good to try to recalibrate our empathy to feel that far out ge- geographically or that far out in time and space. I'm not saying I know the answer to this, but let's say we could know for certain that there's life on Mars, we find out tomorrow, and they're suffering. How bad should we feel? You know, they're suffering on this planet, they're suffering in our country, they're suffering in our neighborhood, they're suffering in my kid's school or whatever whatever, what ought to be the right calibration there? Or let's say we find out that there's a lot of suffering in the rest of the galaxy, in the rest of the Milky Way, way beyond anything that's ever happened on this planet, but we can't do anything about it. Yet, what amount of resources should be going towards doing something about that? My point with this is that for an individual's well-being, at some point, these wires could get badly crossed in sort of like in the thought experiment of putting your oxygen mask on first in a plane if i just go around helping others without oxygen i can only do so much some thinkers recently i think misinterpret the notion in buddhism that empathy is uh universal like this true quality or buddha nature would be you feel the same thing for the the life of the animal that you feel for your child, that you feel for a person in Asia or Africa or Europe. I don't think that's accurate, though, because that would lead to a lot of disruption in society if two kids are running to me, one is my child and one is another, and I'm always just randomly picking who I help, and everybody's randomly picking who they help because empathy is equal. I think it makes sense that you might consistently help yourself or care for yourself or prioritize your mental health and then everything in proximity to you and in that sense it's universal in that it shines your empathy like a light shines 360 degrees up down and all around like the sun the sun doesn't discriminate but then you could ask well, why is it warmer in some places on Earth than others? Doesn't that mean it discriminates? No. It just means some parts of the Earth are closer to it. And so it makes sense that there could be some proximity bias. Maybe my love could be universal. I do love all people. But not everybody's going to step, going to sunbathe in that, in that glow. But that's not necessarily the way people feel. They actually feel like I love these people more. And even antipathy, the opposite of empathy, or one of the opposites, that I dislike people. Not only do I prioritize my empathy here, but I actively generate negative feelings towards certain groups. That's called in-group, out-group bias. So I think our goal spiritually ought to be to try to feel as though that empathy Balance with compassion is universal although you wouldn't recognize it you would feel it inside but you wouldn't recognize it on the surface just like if you were just taking temperature readings across the globe you wouldn't think the sun is shining in all directions and we didn't know that at first when we thought that you know the sun was revolving around our planet it took some more investigation and, and calculations a couple other limitations here emotional appeal. We can be programmed to feel certain things and thereby people can manipulate us. People can use that psychology as a weapon to get us to behave in particular ways, knowing that if they can activate our empathy, we will spend money in a certain way. We will spend attention in a certain way. And then they can commodify that emotion. They can commodify that attention. So that's a risk. And then identifiable victim effect people tend to feel more empathy for specific identifiable individuals rather than abstractions of statistics or large groups and this can lead to the wrong prioritizations as well there's many more but one other one i want to touch on is short-term focus time plays a factor in our empathy so when we feel like i'm just an empathic person i feel it all i'd like you to consider that the amount of exposure in time to suffering matters and the frequency of such exposures and the magnitude of such exposures. There's something called the collapse of compassion when somebody is flashed such intense scenes of war or violence or trauma, where not only does, it, does that empathy not lead to compassion, it causes a, a paralysis. In our concern or in our ability to act timely and skillfully also we prioritize the short term instinctively we're not generally too concerned about future inhabitants of this planet as a whole hence the the climate crisis and many other ecological crises like deforestation resources depleting the, the the concretization of all the land, and uh, the pollution of the water, the air, and so on, and the the difficulty just having access to nature. We're obviously disrupting that because those problems won't reach their final magnitude until everybody here is gone. I see that oftentimes in government, you know, the decisions that they make with debt, with inflation, with policy, it often sells out the future for the present. By the time that all bears out, those decision-makers will be long gone. But because of the short-term gains, it's likely that the public could look more favorably on that particular official and elect them again. But I'd also like us to consider that this really leads to our own deficits in empathy. Hard to empathize with people who don't exist yet. Also hard to empathize with life forms that are on different timescales. Generally speaking, I talked about this in episodes about ghosts, that when we're walking, some people feel differently, but when we're, we're going for a hike, we don't quite feel the same way we do just walking among the trees as we do the moment we know somebody else is on the trail or somebody else is looking at us. We don't quite feel the spotlight effect of oh my god 100 trees are looking at me right now that doesn't feel weird we don't get self-conscious about that (laughs) ordinarily some people do feel as though they're with others when they're in a garden or with nature these are i would say empathic people plant empathic but this is because of the timelines of trees especially a tree like the redwood the great sequoia it looks like it does nothing. It looks like, at a glance, like it's an inanimate object. If you fast forward or you um, observe time-lapse photography and watched the journey of a redwood from a seed to a sapling to a giant to a 300-foot tall ecological monolith, if we could see that on our scale and it was making those changes on our timeline, I bet we'd have very different empathic intuitions with the environment. So this got me thinking, where else could our empathy go? And it reminded me of Einstein's theories of relativity, because I believe he said something about imagining that he was a particle. I think it could be argued that Einstein at least got his mind into the right frame for creativity for those insights for those discoveries by empathizing with the smallest known object a particle i think you could say that he empathized with a photon he said something in the paper in 1905 on a heuristic point of view concerning the production and transformation of light which proposed the idea that light was made up of discrete packets of energy called quanta or photons he said something to the effect of I don't know I don't think this is a direct quotation but something to the effect of I was sitting in my chair in the patent office in bern and I imagined myself as a photon streaking through space with the speed of light in the next moment I was looking down on the earth from outer space and some of these thought experiments putting himself in the shoes of the photon led to the photoelectric effect, the idea that something would happen and there would be an interaction with gravity as light traveled um, across the gravitational fields of massive objects. I used to do the opposite of this kind of empathy as a kid, whereas he was empathizing with a particle. I tried to empathize. I didn't call it that, but I tried to be the whole to sit in nature with eyes closed and empathize with the cosmos. When we make these divisions, when we have all this duality, me and you, here and there, and so on, we tend to prioritize or preference one binary over the other. And this contributes to a lot of conflict. But when you scale out many orders of magnitude to this a city, let's say. If I was looking at the whole city, I wouldn't see all that. All I would see is light. If I scale out beyond this solar system and I just looked at the whole Milky Way galaxy, I don't see all of that anymore. I just see light. And that was my experience doing this as a kid, that I had a, a certain kind of spiritual encounter, uh, one of the earliest spiritual experiences that I had, profound uh, kind of mind-altering or transcendental experiences. It was like the combination of emptiness and light at the same time, that there's no more parts. When I go that far out and let my consciousness drift all the way to the edges of time and space, it's just light, or it's just emptiness. In between, we get the selective empathy, and that's where challenges arise and why empathy, like the skeleton key, like the flashlight, needs support. But on our way to trying to make it that holistic, we can experiment with the inanimate or just with other types of life forms. Looking at a tree and thinking about its timeline. The redwood that I've sat and looked at, it was there hundreds of years before me. It will be there hundreds of years after me, as long as we don't chop it down. So what is it like to think like a tree, like a redwood. Well, so I had to do a little research. These aren't exact calculations and I'm not a biologist, but a tree's electrical impulses, signals, through the leaves travel at like one meter per minute. In our brain, our signals can travel in a range, but let's say 60 meters per minute. There's a wide range though. But that was what I discovered first, 60 times. So 60 times and I saw 600 times and I saw 6,000 times the speed. There's a lot of different speeds in different plants, different trees, different humans. And depending on what the function is, the processing is. But does this number 60 mean anything in time? We divide time into 60. There are 60 seconds in a minute. There are 60 minutes in an hour. Why? because the ancient sumerians had a 60 base counting system there were 59 different symbols until 60 and then they combined to go beyond that which led me to and anyone listening to this that that has a background in mathematics is just going to think i'm being silly here and that this is so obvious but to me it's not and even if it is obvious on paper i think There's something empathically profound about the idea that we divided numbers into 10. I don't think that's arbitrary. That's got to be because we have 10 fingers. So the ability to go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 for our ancestors was probably flashing our fingers. One of these, two of these. 10 has a one in front of it. Two of these has a two in front of it. Three of these has a three of them. It's very intuitive. 10, 20, 30, 40. But let's say we had eight fingers. Get rid of the thumbs. Just watch with me for a moment. Eight, 16, 24, 32, 40, 48. That's not intuitive at all. That the sixth one is 48. That's confusing. But wait, that's only because I'm trying to do it in a system based on 10. Let's say we had eight and we made different symbols. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten. Just forget about eight and nine for a moment. When I'm saying ten now, it means eight. But I have ten. It means one of these. Now, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, it doesn't matter that it's whatever, 16 or 24 or whatever, because it is that. It just has a different symbol. So 10 is a construct based on 10 digits. The Sumerians, the Babylonians had a 60 base system and that is why we stuck with it for time, not everything. The Egyptians, I believe, had a 10 base system. Mesopotamia, 12. The Mayans had 20. So anyways, I'm just inviting us to think that there are many things we take for granted that, of course, things are divided by 10. People actually say nine is the last number before, no, nine is the last number when you're thinking zero to nine because we have 10 digits on our hands. Seven would be the last number, maybe, if we had eight fingers. The reason why the Mayans went with 20 is because they were including their toes. So 20 was one, like one set. So maybe 20 had a word that meant like what our 10 means. And anyways, the point is, this may be the reason why we can't yet empathize with nature. Why we fail to live in harmony with our planet. Because of our constructs. And why we will probably fail to truly recognize and appreciate and cooperate with life elsewhere in the universe. What if they live 5,000 years and their electrical impulses are as slow as a redwood? Or the signals, the communications. Look at that ant. How in the hell is that ant communicating with its queen? Look at just the variety of life forms on this planet, how a whale communicates, how an elephant empathizes, how a zebrafish feels the fear of the other zebrafish, and then humans. From a redwood to a zebrafish to an ant to a virus to a human. And we think that, you know, an alien that comes is going to look like us. It's going to have two eyes and a head and Maybe we'll give it three fingers instead of five, you know, in a hand. That all just shows, you know, the, the limitations of our thinking and why empathy also is something to be revealed, not just acquired. Our ability to empathize is limited by these mental constructs, which we talked about tonight, and our own arbitrary divisions. When we empathize fully or cultivate this capacity or this quality to its fullest potential. Maybe we transcend those divisions and see things differently without the overlay of our own preconceptions and biases. This is similar to how in meditation or deep contemplation, one can achieve a state of non dual awareness where the boundaries between self and other subject and object dissolve the ego starts to dissolve the sense of meanness meanness and meanness in this state one can experience a profound sense of interconnectedness with all the so-called things and a deeper unity with the whole creation